Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm sure for many of you it's a little odd facing this direction this morning. Uh, but you know what? We, we, we still have uh, our word and we still have opportunity to, to study God's word this morning. We might be sitting in a different direction, uh, but we've got the same word here before us and uh, looking forward to uh, being able to share with you what God in his word is, uh, I believe, very uh, kind to share with us these words in 26 through 39 this morning. Uh, more, the more I've read and studied these verses, uh, the more I, I am reminded of, of God's goodness and his graciousness and his mercy and his great love toward us. So uh, we're going to pray <clears throat> And then we're going to uh, jump in here, starting in verse 26. 
is where we'll begin and we'll, Lord willing, make it through the end of the chapter uh, this morning. So if you would join me, let's ask God and invite God to uh, bless his word and pray that his word would go forth as it's intended this morning. Father, you have uh, called us to live by faith and not by sight. Faith is not some standalone belief, but belief accompanied by works. Faith is not primarily something I say I believe, but it becomes evident as my actions and deeds work with what I hold to. Faith is not an intellectual mountain to climb, but it's an ongoing journey fueled by the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit working in me. Faith is being fully convinced that what God has spoken, what he's promised in his word, he will bring it to pass. So walking by faith, it gets tested when the fires of life come. And Lord, we find ourselves in the midst of such a fire fire as a child of yours here in these United States of America. Christ is hated. By connection, we too are hated. I pray you would teach us, Lord, how to live as a follower of Jesus in hostile territory. Pray that you would show us how to live by grace with those around us who desire to persecute us. Pray that you would help us to see that this world is not our home. Remind us in the midst of following you, Lord, that with you we have a better home waiting. We pray that you would prepare us to live godly in the midst of the wicked and perverse generation that surrounds us. Breathe life in us through your spirit and wash us daily in your word. We need daily truth input, Lord. See that we take this word in, that we drink deeply from it. Transform us completely, drawing us unto yourself, conforming us not into the shape of the world, but into the image of your gracious and loving Son, Jesus Christ. And may it be our desire and delight to look more like Jesus as the day approaches. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our rock, our king, our savior. Amen. You might recall the words we ended with last week. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Our text last week called us to consider one another. Verse 24. In order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another... And so much the more as you see the day approaching. That day approaching, is it of any concern to you this morning? Is it a day that weighs heavily on you? Is it a day that compels you to persuade men? Is it a day that directs your present day living? Are we eagerly waiting a Savior? 
The church is to be about exhorting one another and so much the more as this day approaches. In other words, the day to come is intended to be the driver for our meeting together now. It's intended to be the fuel for our encouragement toward one another. It's intended to serve as the urgency for gathering together in the name of Jesus. It's intended to capture the hope of what is yet to come. I wonder whether we truly have eyes to see this day approaching. If we saw this day approaching, wouldn't the results be different? Wouldn't there be an abundant witness of evidence shining light upon this day? When we hear of the day approaching, for many of us in here, we probably think of judgment. The day, capital D, the day is coming. And yet we live in a day where people minimize greatly the righteous judgment of God. We tend to think much of God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, but think little of God's wrath, God's judgment, God's justice. The subject matter before us this morning is one of utmost importance. It's sobering truth that deserves our time and attention. The wrath of God, the vengeance of God, the the future judgment of God. We hear about it and we immediately have a reaction to it. For some, we receive it as it is, the word of God, and we accept it by faith as truth. Some refuse it, they refuse to receive it, citing that it's no longer relevant in our day. Some don't like it because of the way it makes them feel. How does it make them feel? Uncomfortable. Some don't think that time should be spent on such a heavy subject. And it's here where I'm reminded of one of the benefits of expository preaching. What we have before us this morning, I think, is a product of one of the benefits of working through, verse by verse, a book of Scripture. You see, when we encounter a study of a particular book of the Scripture, we take the heavy teaching, we take the lighter teaching, we take all that's in between. We take what comes. It's God's word. You see, expository preaching takes you not only through a book, but it causes you to look intently at passages that you might otherwise push to the side. I would venture to say this would be one of those passages that you would be tempted to push to the side for another time. Some doubt this word, and in doubting, they continue living worldly lives. There are lots of reactions to 
the wrath and judgment of God. I'd like you to know that whatever opinion you might have of God's righteous judgment, God's word stands above all men and is true. God's word always trumps your opinion of what you think to be true. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. We may not like the subject matter of the judgment of God. I realize that as I'm standing before you this morning. This may not be uh, the most popular passage of scripture to preach. This may not be the most pick-me-up kind of message to preach on a Sunday. We might think it too heavy a discourse for young ears, too archaic for the 21st century audience in general. But if the Bible speaks of God's judgment, and it does, how then can we dismiss this doctrine and think rightly about God and his word? You see, to understand the gospel rightly, we must understand the place of God's judgment. The gospel is deemed good news, isn't it? It's good news. Good news of a Savior being born into the world. Why did the Savior come? Matthew 1, through the words of the angel, he came to save his people from their what? Sins. That's why he came. It's because of man's sin problem that God sent his son. He sent him out of love. And the son died on the cross to pay God's just payment for our sin. The gospel, listen, it entails a holy God completely satisfying the cost of man's sin problem. Judgment of God is against sin, and Christ became our sin bearer, our substitute, atoning once for all for our sin. Without the judgment of God against sin, we have no Savior. Without the judgment of God against sin, we have no gospel. And if we have no Savior and we have no gospel, listen... We remain accountable before God for our sins. The judgment of God, therefore, is a wonderful doctrine. Doctrine, by the way, for you younger folks, is just a, uh, another word for teaching. Teaching. It's a teaching that ought to cause us to praise Him each day of our lives. See, the judgment of God stands as a reminder of the one who's in charge. I'm glad he's in charge. All that's going on around us today, I know you're reading, I know you're seeing the stories, I know you're hearing all what's going on. I'm glad we got God in charge. It's a reminder, not only that he's in charge, but he's the one who resides in his holy temple, the Bible says. He's the one who's created all things. He's the one under whom we all stand accountable. The writer in Hebrews has already told us there's nothing, 
nothing hidden from his sight. We are laid open and bare before him. As we look to the text here in Hebrews 10, 26 to 39, we're confronted with this day approaching, this day approaching. Judgment is coming. But if we were to fly over the text before us, sort of a big picture view, we would see that it addresses our response to God and his word. The the text helps us think through who is God and how do I handle the word of God in my own life? Who is God? Who's Jesus? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in my life? How do I treat and handle the Holy Scriptures that have been revealed to me. You know, we tend to view God as loving and merciful and gracious and good and kind, and we like those things about God. But what about those other things of God? His wrath, His fury, His indignation, His judgment, His punishment. Do do we have a buffet-style rendering of who God is? You've been to a buffet, right? You go through the line, and there's all kinds of food in the buffet. More than likely, you're not going to get everything that's in the buffet. I hope you don't. But you pick and you choose what you would like to eat. You know, I believe we live in a society today that treats God in that same manner. We pick and we choose what we like about God, and we, we leave out there what we don't really care for about God. The problem with that is, all of Scripture has been given to us by God. This is all His Word. So the parts even that you don't like, you're still held accountable for. The flyover view of this text also reveals what we really believe about God's word. I was reminded of Paul when he gathered the elders from Ephesus and Miletus. And he tells them his last gathering with this group of elders. And he says, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. So once again, I would ask, do we have that same buffet mentality toward what we read in God's word? You know, I love the passage in Thessalonians 2.13. Describes the kind of people in Thessalonica in the day. He said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively works... In you who believe. The word of God which effectively works in you who believe. Listen, if you don't believe in this word, it's probably not going to work in your life. It effectively works in those who believe. 
as you work through Hebrews 10, 26 to 39, what's your response to God and his word? More, more specifically, what's your response to Jesus and the scriptures that reveal the identity of Jesus? You see, we could talk a lot about God, and, and for, there's a lot of people in the world that are going to be okay with our our verbiage of God, but it's when we start talking about Jesus. That can get us into some trouble. That can be the danger territory. I believe there are three responses from the text. The first of which I want to spend the bulk of time on this morning. And that is willful Sinning. Willful sinning. There are, there are responses to this word that goes forth. One of the responses is willful sinning. Let's understand that verses 26 through 31, we could put it under the heading of warning. Warning. We begin verse 26. For if we sin willfully, there it is. If we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Two words here at the beginning I think are important for our understanding. Willfully, it's the word akousios, it's an adverb. And in the original text, it's placed right at the beginning of the sentence. What's that mean? means it's put there for emphasis. It, it, it wants you to understand it's, it's there for a reason. It's there because it's significant. Willfully. It's the first word in the original language. It speaks of voluntary. Of one's own accord. If we sin willfully, if we sin voluntarily, if we sin of our own accord. Other translations might have the word deliberately. That's also a very good word here. The word for knowledge is not the general word, gnosis. But it's a different word. It's epigenosis, which... I bring it forward just to let you know that it's a word that the writer is using here and he means by using it not not some shallow historical notion about the truth but as one writer says a living believing knowledge of it. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Two aspects to the one who sins willfully. Really two words in particular. Deliberate. This is is sin that is deliberate in nature. It's intentional. It's, It's what one writer said. It's sinning with your eyes open. This is not an unintentional sin. This is not an, oh, I forgot... This is not the kind of sin that happens as we walk with the Lord and 
And in our days, there are times when maybe there are a thought that comes and, and we don't take that thought captive. There's a sin in thought. There's a sin in our word. There's a sin in our... De- We're not talking about that kind of sin this morning here in this passage. It's a willful, deliberate, voluntary sinning against God. So not only deliberate in nature, but continual in scope. Deliberate and continual. Ongoing. For if we sin willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, there's two sobering realities that follow. And let's remember, this is not the first warning alarm sounded in Hebrews. If you have your Bible, turn with you for just a moment because I'd like to track a few of these. This, this is, they've been piling up as we continue to read Hebrews, these warnings. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we what? Lest we drift away. Turn to page chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. As the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts. Skip down to verse 12 and 13. Beware. There's a warning word for you. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing, departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see once again the significance of the body of Christ? We're to be exhorting one another to what end? Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. All right, warning after warning after warning. This is yet another warning. Maybe the most severe warning. Chapter 6 gave a warning as well. Chapter 6 gave a lengthy warning. Talking about if it's impossible for those who have fallen away to renew them again to repentance. Same kind of thoughts, same kind of ideas here. Well, the first reality that I'd like us to see from the text of what happens if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, the first one, the first reality is that there's no longer remaining a sacrifice of sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. When one willfully, deliberately continues in sin, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Having received full knowledge of the truth, he continues to blatantly turn away from it. The word that we typically hear is apostasy. It's an intentional falling away or withdrawal. It's a defection. One writer says it's the sin of rejecting the gospel. It's the most serious of all sins, he writes, because it's the most deliberate and willful form of unbelief. 
It's not a sin of ignorance, but of rejecting known truth. Are we clear on this? For one who has deliberately charted his course of sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Listen, once he's turned against the only path where forgiveness of sins is offered, there is no other way for forgiveness of sins, is there? It's through Christ. Remember, we who once were far away, we've been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7 talks about forgiveness of sins, the redemption, right, that's offered for us through Christ and his blood. The very one that he's turned against is the only path where forgiveness of sins is offered. So willfully turning against Christ then, there remains no sacrifice for your sins. Think about that for just a moment. What a grave tragedy to deliberately turn away from the truth of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. It provides the second sobering truth for one who willfully keeps on sinning against God. It says not only will there no longer be, remain a sacrifice, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. In a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Hey, listen. <clears throat> there are a lot of people who don't like to read about this. <clears throat> they don't like to hear this. Certain? It's certain. It's going to happen. <clears throat> fearful? A fearful expectation? You bet it's fearful. When you've turned away... From your only means of forgiveness of sins, it's fearful. Fearful expectation of judgment. And fiery. I don't believe there's anything metaphorical about that either. Fiery. I believe that to be literal. fiery indignation which will not just hurt but devour the adversaries. Jonathan Edwards in his most well-known sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Do you remember that? Heard of that? He speaks to the people in the church that day about this certain fearful expectation of judgment of God. He speaks to them about the realities of hell, the, the fiery indignation that awaits the sinner who has lived his life apart from Christ. And you know, there are many readers of Edwards' message today that are shocked by the intense descriptions and strong language in his sermon. I read it again yesterday in preparation for today. It wouldn't go over well in today's gathering. Many would call his message a, a, nothing more than a scare tactic. 
Many would say there's no need for that kind of thing today. Some would say he just he went he went a little bit overboard stressing the judgment of God to come. Some would just refer to Edwards as this fire and brimstone kind of preacher. But based on the little that I do know of Edwards, I don't believe that he was pounding and thumping his Bible all the while, yelling out his exhortations to flee the pit of hell. I believe that we have crafted a web of our own making about the motive behind Edwards' message. The fact was this. There were people in the assembly that day. And there are people who are in the assembly this day. Who need to hear the warning being sounded by God. They needed to hear about this God who is ready to pour out his fury and his wrath against sin. They needed to know that delay or setting aside the gospel for another time was unacceptable. It was costly to their soul. To give you a picture of this, one of the best pictures in the scriptures, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning of verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Listen to verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. This is not know about him. Know him. Have a relationship with him. Taking Vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These, listen, verse 9, shall be punished with what? Everlasting destruction. From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Paul, when he's in Athens, you you probably recall, it was a city submerged in idols. And as Paul is preaching to the people there in the Areopagus, he says in verse 30 of chapter 17 in Acts, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent. He commands, that's not an option. He commands all men everywhere. All men everywhere. That's United States. All men everywhere. He commands them to repent. Goes on, verse 31. Why? Because he, God's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That man we know to be Jesus He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Go back to Hebrews 10, 28 and 29, contrasting verses. And what we have here in 28 and 29 is really an argument from the lesser to the greater. If we look at 28, 
We see, it says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, if you have your Bible. And beginning in verse 2, chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. If there's found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant. There's a key phrase. In transgressing his covenant. We're in the old covenant. In transgressing the law, the Mosaic law, the covenant. Who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them either the sun or the moon or any host of heaven, which I have not commanded. Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Well, we were talking a little bit about this in our home, and someone brought up the idea, wow, we'd have a lot less population today if that was the way we operated today. It's true. That's a picture of the old covenant, the old law. Transgressing the law, two or three witnesses was all it took to cast a death sentence of stones. And then you get to verse 29 in Hebrews 10. Of how much worse punishment, and I, and I stop right there as I read. Now, having read Deuteronomy 17 as an example of one transgressing the old covenant that God established through Moses, it's a little bit, I have to admit, it's a little bit alarming to see of how much worse punishment. You mean stoning isn't bad enough? Death is a pretty significant penalty, would we agree, for sin? How could things get a whole lot worse? Verse 29 defines how it is that one will receive a much worse punishment. And it's layered into three sections here. Verse 29. The one who says, trampled, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. Trampled to treat as worthless. Trampled the Son of God underfoot. The one who has counted the blood of the new covenant a common thing. The blood that has the power to sanctify, he's treated commonly. In other words, the blood of the Son is no different than the blood of any other man. And then thirdly, the one who has insulted the spirit of grace. The Lord would have us and desire, I believe, for us to see how much worse a punishment awaits for the one who has willingly chosen to forsake God, to minimize the power of Christ's once-for-all blood sacrifice, and to quench the Holy Spirit's operating grace. I want you to think about it. 
one who tramples the Son of God underfoot. It's an attack on his person. Notice the title that's used, the Son of God. You're going to trample underfoot the Son of God. One who treats the blood of the covenant as common and ordinary. It's an attack on his redemptive work. And one who spurns the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's an attack on the person and work of the promised Holy Spirit given to us. It gets worse. Look at verse 30. For we know him who said, stop right there. We stop as we read. Hopefully that just raises a red flag, just that first line. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. We know the one who spoke the word. We know the one who spoke the word. And he goes on, he tells us what that word is. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, those two quotes. We know him, and yet we're willfully going the other way. We know what it says, but we're deliberately taking another road. That is incredible. We know him. We know what he says. Friends, I don't want any of you leaving here today thinking that the sinful road you're on is okay. There's coming a day of judgment, and God has appointed his son as the judge. And judgment is based upon righteousness, and righteousness is obtained only through belief in the person and finished work of Christ at the cross. And to willfully go against what he's spoken, it's a surefire way for an appointment in hell. If we deliberately and continually sin against him, That's where it leads. Verse 31 is, is one of the most frightening verses in all of Scripture. If you willfully sin against God. There's, a, there's an asterisk, there's a caveat there. If you willfully sin against God. Thumb your nose at what Jesus did. And sin against the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It's frightening. Beyond measure, it's frightening. He will judge you as guilty. You will be sentenced to deep darkness. Eternal torment. Phrases like weeping and gnashing of teeth come to mind. Separated from the presence of God forever. And you know, there are some here in the subject of the judgment of God. Some like to soft pedal this judgment of God and say that destruction means annihilation. That you're just going to disappear into nothingness. You're just going to be zapped. I'd like to be clear. Again, I don't, this, this isn't my opinion. This is what I see in the scripture. 
According to the scripture, hell is eternal torment. Eternal, everlasting torment. It's not going to get any better the longer that you're in hell. God's not going to look down and he's not going to say, well, you've, you've paid your, your penalty, now I'll let you out. No. That's not what I read here. It's, it's eternal torment. I also read it's going to be hot. It's going to be miserable. And the companions that you surround yourself with down there are going to be miserable. An ungodly lot. You know, there are many who like to talk about and use the name, uh, the, the precious Lamb of God, and, and not speak much of his fiery judgment. But I was, as I was reading scripture this week, I came across this phrase, this verse, that might help us change the way we think about Lamb of God. In Revelation 6, 16, this is in the midst of destruction going on. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? The wrath of the Lamb. No one, friends, is going to be able to stand on that day. It's a rhetorical question. No one can stand against the fury and wrath of God against sin. God's word is holding forth a warning for all to hear. And as he submits the warning, I would ask that you also consider how loving it is of God to issue the warning. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but I want you to know this morning that God has provided the very means of escaping this judgment. I'd like to give you two verses that tell you so. First one is in Romans chapter 5, and the end of verse 8 we're familiar with. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But it goes on in verse 9 and says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, listen, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Did you hear that? We shall be saved from wrath, the wrath of God, through Jesus Christ. How so? He bore God's wrath on our behalf at the cross. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's pretty clear. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. I want to let you know this morning, there is no one else, no other name given among men under heaven. There's no other name that is going to be able to rescue you from the wrath yet to come. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you willfully sin against him. You see, he's a holy God. Sin demands punishment. 
And unless and until you believe and receive, John 1, 12, Christ and his finished work at the cross and understand that it was Christ who paid that penalty for your sin. When you believe that to be true by faith, you are covered by the blood. You are obtaining then that righteousness of Christ himself happens at that great exchange at the cross. Friends, this morning I would say, as Apostle Paul calls us to in 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. God began that reconciling work at the cross. And even yet today, he's calling us. The Bible says that God is patient. His desire is that none would perish. Listen, we're not talking about some God who takes great delight in seeing people go to hell. That's not the God we serve. His delight and desire is that we would all be saved. But if we sin willfully and deliberately and continually after having received the knowledge of the truth, the warning is put forth. The judgment of God is coming. Nahum chapter 1. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Did you hear that? He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. He's not going to let them off the hook. You know, there might be some court cases today where you go, how in the world did that happen? How'd that guy get off? Listen, at the end of the day, he's not letting off the wicked. And you ain't going to be able to bribe him. Not going to happen. You see, because God we serve is impartial. He's an impartial judge. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. And the rocks are thrown down by him. And then it says that the Lord is good. In the midst of all that language then, the Lord is good. He is good. He is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. He knows the ones who trust in him. What do you conspire against the Lord? Scripture says he will make an utter end of it. Psalm 2, it reminds me of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, right? So this is a warning. 26 to 31, God is not to be taken lightly. He's a God of righteous judgment and wrath is reserved toward those who forsake him and choose not to obey the gospel. So willful sin is one response and I do pray none here walk that road. Test it out. The next two responses, I believe, in the scripture, they go hand in hand. And the first one, I just call insightful remembering. So we have willful sinning. And then verses 32 through 34, insightful 
remembering. And I say insightful because this is not just remembering just to be remembering. But it's, it's a very detailed recalling. A very line by line kind of uh, remembering that's advocated. But recall, verse 32. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated... You endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Insightful remembering. Notice... It's a recall to the former days. And we don't have all the details here before us, but what we do know is that the writer is pointing to a time in the history of these people. Remember the church made up of those who were Jewish Christians? But it's also made up of a group of people who were professing to be Christians. People who really were showing themselves not to be Christians by their actions, by the way they were living made up of both groups of people. Recall the former days. There were some days of persecution, it seems, that had been going on. How did they handle themselves in the former days during persecution? Well, it says that they endured. I want you to underline that because that's a key thing here. They endured. They endured a great struggle with sufferings. And in two ways they endured. Partly while you were made a spectacle. That word spectacle uh, is the word uh, theatrizo, which comes from where we get our English word theater, on the stage. And I was immediately reminded of of how, you know, persecution and suffering in the Roman Colosseum. You know, the suffering persecution carried out by the Romans toward Christians. But, But what about those of the Judaism group, what kind of persecution would they... And I think that's being described here. It's it's that of reproach, that of reviling, that of going through uh, tribulation, suffering. You were made a spectacle in that way, but you were also partly why you became companions of those who were so treated. What is it to be a companion of one who was so treated? I think that text answers the question in verse 34. It's exemplified in their compassion that they had toward those who were in chains. Recall your former days. Remember that you endured great suffering, great trial, great persecution. You had compassion and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. I was talking to the family this week about that particular line and asked them if someone were to come into the house and just plunder and pillage and take whatever they wanted. And they went into your room and they took some of your favorite things. How'd that make you feel? In the flesh, most of us probably would want to do something about that. But here what we see in the text is that these people in their former days of struggle and suffering, they were at a point where they 
could truly, joyfully accept the plundering of their goods. Do you know it takes a lot of grace to be able to arrive at that point? It takes a a large amount of humility to joyfully accept that. It, It takes a large measure of relationship with this God that you serve to know that no matter what someone takes because that's what the verse goes on and says they could joyfully accept the plundering of their goods knowing that they had a better and endure a better there's the word better they had a better and an enduring possession one that's going to last where in heaven remember remember Jesus speaking in the sermon on the mount he says do not store up for yourselves Treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But where, friends, are we to store up treasure? In heaven. In heaven. This is wonderful. It's an insightful remembering that's called for here. Remember your former days. Some of you in here, you had some moments in your past that were hard, difficult, went through some, some suffering, some, some major trial, and you endured, you held on. The writer is calling them to remember that time. Essentially, he's calling them to replay the tapes. You know, and what I do outside here and, and refereeing, one of the things I found helpful is to actually watch video. Watch video of where I'm positioned on the court. Watch video of how I'm standing. Watch video of my mechanics, how I call a particular foul or, or communicate. Watching the video, replaying the tape. You know, teams watch game tape. Why do they watch game tape? They watch game tape not only to see what they did well, but most importantly, to see what they didn't do well. To learn from the things that they did well. Game tape is a wonderful thing to learn from. It's also a wonderful memory tool because I can see plays on tape. And then when I go on to the court and I see that play in the next game, I'm, I'm triggered to make the right call now. Replaying the tapes. Insightful remembering. It's, it's thinking about what does God's word say? What's God done? Who is Jesus? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in my life? Why, big picture, am I here? You see, we are to allow the word of God to strengthen us as we replay it. Over and over and over and over. When the word of God is replayed and replayed and replayed, and we have that word of God in us. Insightful remembering. Don't you think the people of God were reminded of God's faithfulness? Remember when they crossed over and they were, they put those 12 stones, those stones of what? Remembrance. Remember that day. 
Remember what God's done. The psalmist talks about remembering the wonderful works of God. And here the Hebrew writer is calling them to remember a time. Remember the former days in which you too went through suffering. You personally experienced suffering. You personally experienced it. And you were persecuted because you showed compassion to those who were in chains. You endured. Remember that day. Replay the tape. Replay the tape. You endured. And you endured because you knew that you had a better and an enduring possession awaiting you in heaven. Our response to the word is willful sin. 26 to 31, the warning. We see also insightful remembering. Really, and this is an encouragement. Not so much a warning, but an encouragement to remember the day. And then he ends here in 35 through 39 with faithful living. Faithful living. Willful sinning, insightful remembering, faithful living. This is really an exhortation as he closes this chapter. Therefore, in light of those former days, in light of replaying the tapes, therefore, do not cast away your confidence. Do not cast away your confidence. Remember verse 19 says, brethren, having boldness to enter. That same word for boldness, boldness and confidence are used interchangeably. Do not cast away your confidence, your boldness, which has great, what? Great reward. How many of you here like rewards? Anybody? You like to get a reward for something? Especially when it has to do with a dessert or some good food. I know, I know this group over here especially likes that. Okay. A reward. We're talking about a reward that's much greater than anything here on earth, though. Don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need. Here's the need of the hour. You have need of endurance. See, when you replay the tapes, what you find is that you endured. He's already told them, you endured. In your former days, you endured the suffering. What's needed now? Endurance. What's the book of Hebrews been telling us all along? Endure, 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 persevere, persevere, all the way to the end. Keep going. And in order to see that it keeps going in your life, you need to understand you don't do it, you're not intended to do it by yourself as some individual person, but you're to do it as a part connected to other parts in the body. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, oh man, you know, I I read that and I read that and I read that and I stopped and I was like, you mean to tell me that we have need of endurance so that after we've done the will of God. So I stopped right there and I was thinking. So enduring suffering, going through persecution, is actually the will of God? Yep. The idea of enduring is to remain under. Hupamene, to remain under. 
You know, the tendency for many of us when we are going through suffering, we're going through persecution, truly, we haven't known until now. I think it's coming. I think it's going to come with a torrent. I think we're going to finally understand what it is to be persecuted. For so long, we've not understood what it is to be persecuted in the United States of America. And I think we're on the front end of the wave. It's going to happen. But let us not be fearful in that it's going to happen. Let us understand that the Bible has prepared us for that. The Bible speaks of persecution. This is not a new idea or concept. It may be new to the United States of America, but it's not new biblically. This is old. This has been happening for a long, long time. After you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. We've got great reward, and we've got promise. And then we get this passage from Habakkuk. And this is how this closes. And I believe the closing here is wonderful in terms of how it sets up what's to come in Hebrews chapter 11. We see, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is the Septuagint version of Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. It ends with, but we, as a sort of a, a declaration, a, a drawing, we are not of those who draw back to perdition or shrink back out of fear of persecution. We're not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So what are these verses from Habakkuk doing here? What do they have to tell us about faithful living? Well, if you know your prophet Habakkuk, you know that Habakkuk is writing in the context of what is yet to come very soon, pending destruction from the Babylonians. And Habakkuk, as the writer, is asking questions of God, isn't he? One of the questions that he, he concludes chapter 1 with was, God, you are, you are a holy and righteous God. How is it that you could allow someone so wicked, so perverse, so evil to overtake someone who's more righteous than they are? I mean, to Habakkuk as he's writing, you're such a holy God. How could you allow what seems to be from this perspective, from this vantage point, how could you allow such wicked people to just destroy righteous people? And God tells Habakkuk a couple things. He tells him, first of all, that there's coming a day when the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy the place where he's at there. They're going to come in, they're going to set up their ramparts, and they're going to just destroy. But God goes on and he tells Habakkuk that the very people who are plundering and destroying, they themselves will be judged. It's coming. It's not going to tarry. They, they too will be judged. Here in Hebrews, he uses this passage I believe, to point out in terms of faithful living. Because we see that in the context of Habakkuk, 
while he knows that the Babylonians are coming. And he also is informed that the Babylonians themselves are going to be judged. They're not going to get through clean. They're going to be rendered same judgment. I believe what we see is that Habakkuk is called to live by faith. The literal says, my just one shall live by faith. Habakkuk is called to live by faith even in the midst of pending destruction coming to his hometown. Okay, so keep that context in Habakkuk. Now let's transfer and carry over to Hebrews. The Hebrew writer here says, He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Who is it that's coming? The Lord himself is coming. And he's not going to tarry. And some of you say, well, it's taken him some 2,000 years. That's a long time. But we also got to remember God's definitions and terms. With him, a day, you know, a day is like a, you know, years are drops in the bucket, right, with God. So his thoughts are higher than our th- thoughts, too. We, we have to remember that, what the scripture says about what he thinks and what he says. But he's coming, and he's not going to tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. So here's the same deal. Persecution, suffering, we're on the front end of it. It's going to happen. It's probably going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And even in the midst of that, the call in the text is to endure. We have need of endurance. And we're called as his righteous ones. The just shall live by faith. Know that if anyone draws back, it goes back, this reverts back to the warning. If anyone draws back, he takes no pleasure in them. We've, we've, we've seen already he has wrath reserved for his enemies. The call is to remain faithful, to live faithfully in the midst of a culture, in the midst of an environment that is radically opposed and against Jesus Christ and all things connected to Jesus Christ. Now, we don't fully yet understand what that is and what that looks like. But the Bible has prepared us. The Bible has equipped us for such a time as this. I praise him for that. This insightful remembering, recounting of God's wonderful works and recognizing who Jesus is and the scriptures and the daily intake of God's truth will prepare you for faithful living all the way to the end. As we'll see here in Hebrews 11, living by faith is not some nebulous concept or intellectual exercise, but belief coupled with behavior, orthodoxy knit together with orthopraxy. It's faith working together with works, as James would describe it. And the next chapter, the writer is going to pound out example after example of men and women of faith. It's almost as though he's, he's meeting the listener. He's, he's kind of meeting them up front. 
giving them examples in case the listener's going, well, what exactly does it mean to live by faith? The writer, through the Holy Spirit, simply says in Hebrews 11, let me show you what it means to live by faith. The gallery of Hebrews 11. Familiar names line the pages of Hebrews 11. But faithful living is the theme. They all lived by faith. They endured. They persevered. These people had in view a better inheritance in a better country. They realized that this world is not their home. What a great example. So, willful sinning. That's one response. There's a warning here in the scripture. One of about five or six warnings that's listed here in Hebrews. Very strong warnings to not sin willfully against God, not to turn away intentionally from God. He lays out what will happen. He lays out the path. He lays out exactly what's going to happen for those who choose to do so. He calls us to insightful remembering and he calls us to faithful living. I pray as a church, we would daily be washed in the word that we might remember the wonderful works of God, that we might remember those times and those moments when God showed himself and that we exhibited endurance, we exhibited perseverance through a hard, difficult time, that it would be training for us, preparing us for the suffering and genuine persecution that I do believe is coming our way. Will you endure? I pray that you will. I pray we all do. In Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for a sobering word, a message that we all need to hear. Father, thank you for sounding the warning for us. It's out of great love that you do so. Father, I pray that everyone here would hear the warning that's being sounded. That we would hear, that we would turn, that we would repent from our sin. That we would turn to you through your son Jesus in faith. That we would live our days faithful to you. That we would not be tempted to call it quits or turn back in light of the persecution that's coming. I was reminded, Lord, of that word in the book of Habakkuk. It reminds us in many ways of the faith that's called for. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive oil may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. What a wonderful declaration of faith in the midst of pending destruction. Father, I thank you 
for people like Habakkuk in the scriptures and others that you've placed in the scriptures as examples to learn from. Father, I pray most of all we would learn from the one who suffered greatly on our behalf, and that was Jesus, the one who went to the cross and suffered unjustly, nailed to the cross, died a criminal's death on my behalf. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to completely satisfy and take care of what the scripture today speaks of, and that is the wrath of God. We've seen through your word that the wrath of God can be averted if we but call upon your name. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, thank you for giving us a way of escape, a way out. But Lord, you've given to us much more than just a way of escape. You've given to us the opportunity, the privilege to live for you among a people, by and large, who hate you. And you've called us in your word to to live with endurance and perseverance, to live with a light toward eternity, to live with a gaze toward heaven, to live in such a way that we realize this world here, it's not our home. Help us to hold things loosely. Help us to store up treasure, not here, but in heaven. So, Father, thank you for your good word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.